0: Support for Living on Earth comes from United Technologies, innovating to make the world a better, more sustainable place to live.
1: From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Boston and PRI, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. According to the U.S. Constitution, Congress makes the laws, the president implements them, and the Supreme Court rules on violations and disputes. But with Congress and the presidency stuck in gridlock, more and more the courts are forced to reinterpret old laws to address new challenges. There has been no major national environmental legislation passed since 1990, and litigation is taking over, with state attorneys general playing a powerful role. When the Bush administration failed to address global warming, in 2005, the attorneys general of 12 states, led by Democrats in Massachusetts, along with environmental groups, sued and won. The Supreme Court ordered the EPA to regulate non-toxic CO2 as a pollutant based on the Clean Air Act of 1970, which was largely aimed at poisonous smog. Now, key Republican AGs are joining forces with the fossil fuel industry to roll back some Obama administration regulations, especially regarding power plant emissions. Copious campaign contributions from this industry prompted a recent story in the New York Times that raises questions of conflicts of interest. Paul Nolette is a lawyer who teaches political science at Marquette University and the author of a forthcoming book called Federalism on Trial, State Attorneys General and National Policymaking in Contemporary America.
2: Republican AGs in general, but particularly led by Oklahoma's Scott Pruitt and Texas's Greg Abbott, have brought numerous lawsuits um, to challenge individual pieces of the Obama administration's EPA um, regulatory program. Virtually all environmental rules, whether they deal with climate change or mercury or a variety of other issues, water pollution, AGs have been there and they've challenged the Obama administration. I, I don't know exactly what Greg Abbott in Texas, what his, his count is up to, but I know it was well into the dozens in terms of the number of lawsuits that he's, he's brought to challenge the Obama administration. A couple of years ago, he, he described his role as AG as, I wake up, I sue the Obama administration, and I go home. Um, and I think that that's been, been a pretty accurate encapsulation of what's going on.
1: Now, remind us about the traditional role of a state attorney general.
2: So traditionally, AGs really focused much more on the state level. They would perhaps most commonly be defending the state against lawsuits brought against it. But what's what's happened and what's changed over the last couple decades in particular and escalating even more so in the last few years is that AGs have gone beyond this traditional role and been much more aggressive in going on the offense in bringing lawsuits both against corporations and against the federal government.
1: Now, in terms of the environment. Uh, As I understand it, uh, attorneys general uh, really got involved in this area in a case known as Massachusetts versus EPA, the litigation that wound up with the Supreme Court saying, yes, the EPA can regulate CO2, uh, the global warming gas, as a pollutant. And it's, of course, the force behind uh, the current fight over regulating power plants.
2: Yes, that's exactly correct. Massachusetts v. EPA, not only was it perhaps the most important case in environmental law, it really marked a a crucial victory for the AGs that has sparked a backlash among anti-regulatory forces. And so a lot of what you see with Republican AGs bringing lawsuits against the Obama administration, not all of them, but many of that has come about because of fallout from Massachusetts v. EPA and the, the new climate rules from the Obama administration. Interestingly, the
1: Massachusetts versus EPA case joined state attorneys general with environmental organizations like NRDC, the Sierra Club, and such. Mm-hmm. Today, we're talking about uh, conservative Republican attorneys general joining with energy producers uh, who have an interest in the, in the regulation. Um, what's the difference here in your view?
2: Well, I think one way of looking at it is to say that it's, it's really the, the other side of the, the same coin, During the George W. Bush administration, when the EPA was essentially not taking the actions it needed on climate change and other issues, Democratic AGs took full advantage of that and, as you mentioned, allied with various interest groups like the Sierra Club to bring lawsuits. And so what we see now is Republicans saying, hey, if you're going to play at that game, so are we, and we're going to ally with, with others with interests in blocking the types of regulations that the Obama administration has been promulgating. Now that that being said, I do think these industry ag relationships do raise an additional issue, and a problematic one, in that many of these industries have also been big-time campaign donors to ags, and so it it raises the the prospect, at least, of a sort of quid pro quo going on here in terms of, hey, if you send in these donations, then that's going to affect my enforcement strategy. And that is quite problematic.
1: So uh, how much fossil fuel money in particular is influencing uh, these attorneys' general elections, do you think?
2: Well, it's hard to say because a lot of it is dark money, where it's hard to know precise figures about how much money is in the system, how much is going to party organizations like the Republican AG organization or the Democrats. And also, it's, it's difficult to know who the actual funders are. I mean, what I can say is that it's, we're talking millions of dollars, whereas before, AG offices were really considered pretty sleepy positions on the state level that a lot of people ignored, including lobbyists. But that's certainly not the case anymore.
1: Uh, remind us why an attorney general being in a case gives added leverage to, say, a private interest, uh, an energy company.
2: Well, it's interesting. One of the big holdings in Massachusetts, VEPA beyond its importance for climate change specifically, was that it announced a new standard to get into court for states. As the court put it, states should be offered special solicitude when the court is analyzing whether they have a claim that they can press in court. And so what that means, the bottom line, is that states probably have an easier time getting into court than a lot of industry groups, so allying with the states makes it easier to get into court. It also helps to bring a greater level of legitimacy to lawsuits, I think. You know, if it's Corporation A bringing a lawsuit against the Obama administration, it's easier to dismiss that and say, well... They're just suing in their self-interest or something. But by bringing in AGs into the process, you can say, oh, we have this coalition of 20 some odd states, and this is really about fundamental constitutional issues like federalism. And so it brings a certain level of legitimacy that might not be there if it was just an industry-only suit.
1: So... Um, how important is the Supreme Court uh, case allowing corporations to make pretty much unlimited donations to politicians, a case called Citizens United? How important is that to this most recent development?
2: It's important. It's very important, actually, because a lot of these donations that are going to, say, the Republican or Democratic AG organizations are unlimited in nature, are dark money, so it's hard to know, it's really impossible to know where the money's actually coming from. And the Citizens United campaign finance regime has helped allow that to happen. I think a lot of the emphasis at first and a lot of the analysis of Citizens United and campaign finance has been focused on on the federal level and the impact there. But I think you see with state AGs that the impact really does trickle down to the state level very much so. And again, money is going to flow where the power is. And as AGs get more power, they're also seeing more money flow in in terms of lobbying and donations.
1: Understanding that it's hard to trace where contributions come from, in your view, which side do you think is getting more money? The uh, more liberal, often more Democratic side, or the more conservative, uh, usually Republican side?
2: I think right, right now, I mean, the, the Republican side is getting more money. Their national organization, the Republican AG Association, has been a lot more active in trying to get Republicans elected in negotiating which way that they're, that a, Republican AG should um, go in terms of policy making and also raising money.
1: To what extent do you think the situation now is that if these attorneys general are getting significant contributions from these industries, that actually they're acting in their own personal self-interest when they go into court with these companies, as well as ostensibly for the citizens in their state?
2: Right. I mean, I, I don't want to speculate too much and say, oh, there's there's certainly a big link between um, the money coming in and the AG actions that are going out, but- it certainly raises some some real questions, and I think one of my big concerns is that so much of this has been completely under the radar. You know, I think the New York Times story really helped to, to bring out some of the issues that are going on, but a lot of these collaborations are simply not in the in public at all, and so it's hard to know how much of an impact these this money and this lobbying is having.
1: For many years, we've had a fairly dysfunctional Congress.
2: To what extent
1: uh, is these coalitions of attorneys general uh, pushing back federal regulation, stepping into a void that's been left by uh, the ability to get legislation through on Capitol Hill?
2: I, I think you have your finger right on it. Given the fact that there's been a, a long history now or the last several years of mostly divided government, All throughout American history, when you see those sorts of dynamics happening on the federal level, a lot of policy has been pushed to the states. So that particular aspect of it isn't a new development. That's something that's been true in American federalism for quite some time. But what is new is that state AGs are playing the major national role that they are now. So I think you're exactly right to say that the Dysfunction, and I think it's fair to call it a dysfunction on the on the federal level, is one of the major reasons why AGs have been able to step up and say, "Well, if Congress isn't going to do it, we are."
1: How healthy for our democracy is this development? And if you think it's not so healthy, how would you unwind it?
2: Yeah, that, that's it's a good question and a big one. Um, I do. I think it's unhealthy in, in large part because. As AGs have gotten more involved in national policy that had much more of an influence over it, not just in an environmental policy where it's been big, consumer protection, antitrust, healthcare, all of these different issues. And because it's so removed from the public eye, it's hard to know whether this policy that AGs are making are really advancing the public interest, whether the policies that are coming out of it are a good thing and really who's even driving the process. So it raises a lot of concerns about democratic policymaking. In terms of what to do about it, I think some of the things that should be considered are laws that encourage more transparency of AG activities. In a number of states, quite remarkably, lobbying rules apply only to legislators and the governor, but not to other state offices, including the AG's office. So a lot of the disclosure requirements that apply to these other state-level actors don't apply to AGs, and that's something that probably needs to change. But I will say that there's so many incentives for AGs to, to take an activist role now that it's going to be hard to unwind, I think. So we might have to focus on things like disclosure and transparency to really know what's going on.
1: Paul Nolette is a political science professor at Marquette University. His forthcoming book is called Federalism on Trial, States Attorneys General and National Policymaking in Contemporary America. Thanks for taking the time with us today, Professor.
2: Thanks so much for having me, Steve.
1: Coming up, a new way to have a green, green Christmas. Stay tuned to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Children's Fairyland is a historic amusement park inside the nation's first wildlife refuge at Lake Merritt, surrounded by bustling downtown Oakland, California. This unique urban utopia has attracted guests with its storybook charm since 1950. It even inspired Walt Disney and his Disneyland. But recently, Fairyland has been overrun with aggressive fox squirrels, reddish rodents that are twice the size of the familiar gray squirrel, and seem to know no boundaries. Youth Radio's Megan Baus has our story.
3: Beatrix Potter's Tale of Squirrel Nutkin opens like this.
4: This is a tale about a tale, a tale that belonged to a little red squirrel, and his name was Nutkin. He had a brother called Twinkleberry and a great many cousins. They lived in a wood at the edge of a lake.
3: Here in Oakland, in the wood, at the edge of Lake Merritt, is a place where fairy tales like Potter's come to life. Anybody under
5: the little red mark has to have somebody stand with them.
3: You can walk through the Alice in Wonderland maze, ride the mini choo-choo train, and visit that shoe where the old woman lived.
5: It, it, it's it's pretty amazing
6: around here.
3: There's even a population of cuddly woodland creatures that call this park home. I saw a squirrel. Do you like the squirrels? Yeah. They're they're friendly and stuff. Yeah. But for Fairyland employee Crystal Griffin, the squirrels aren't always welcome guests.
5: At Children's Fairyland, we have a lot of squirrels that come out because of the food that we feed them. So i never, ever seen many squirrels anywhere else but here in Children's Fairyland in Oakland. Are they, like, aggressive? or? Yes, because they will go into someone's scroller and get some food. They will come up to you when you're eating, so you can't eat at certain rides.
3: According to one mother in the park, Melinda DeRowan, they'll go after adult targets, too.
5: I just kept backing up, and the next thing I knew, I looked away, and the squirrel jumped on my pant leg and started kind of crawling up me. And I, like, shook and got freaked out, and people around me were like, whoa, like, every, all these other parents couldn't believe it. And they're just very, very aggressive here. They're kind of chunky, too.
3: It's more than just a case of spooked moms and lost cookies. The executive director of Children's Fairyland, C.J. Hirschfield, has assessed the damage
5: park-wide. They are destroying our irrigation lines on a weekly basis so that my team needs to come through and repair them on a weekly basis. Um, some people may not realize that they've, they've eaten the, it sounds kind of awful, they eat the faces off some of our, you know, Mary Mary, quite contrary, so that our art and restoration department is constantly having to do repairs on sets because they will eat through that. Over
3: the last couple years, Hirschfeld estimates that the squirrel scourge has gotten pricey.
5: It's definitely in the thousands, probably over time, definitely in the tens of thousands of dollars. You know, this is a a controversial issue. We love animals, but we really feel we need to figure out a way to get a handle on this problem.
3: So she's turned to the pros to help figure out a humane way to address the overpopulation. David Jaynes is an ecologist with the Alameda County Vector Control with two decades of experience under his belt.
0: What you'd have to do is live trap them put the traps out when there's nobody around. And then once you've trapped them, then there's actually like a little straitjacket. It's like a little conical sleeve. They run into it, and then you can trap them in there, and then you can do injections and then release them.
3: Some of the squirrels could be trapped and injected with a serum that stops them from reproducing. Some could be exterminated. The other part of the plan is on the humans, locking down food sources, and training all park that even though it's really fun, you can't feed the squirrels.
0: Then over a couple of years, uh, you'll see a reduction. And then hopefully that's an acceptable level. Obviously, we don't want to get rid of all the squirrels because, you know, people like squirrels. You know, they're cute. they got the little fluffy tails.
3: And they are cute. The fox squirrels, with their reddish fur and big cheeks, are kind of nice to see around. In Beatrix Potter's story... Squirrel Nutkin is trapped by an old owl. For the squirrels of Fairyland, straight jacket traps by vector control. Sometimes reality is stranger than fairy tales. For Living on Earth, I'm Megan Baus in Oakland.
1: That story was produced by Ike Sreeskandaraja of Youth Radio. Well, from sunny California, we plunge into the kind of weather that many folk in more northerly parts of the U.S. face in winter. Here's this week's note on emerging science from Jenny Doring.
5: Winter in the north brings snow and ice and tons of salt on roads. In Washington State, for example, road crews apply about four tons of sodium chloride per mile every winter, just for a single lane. The salt certainly does the trick, It melts the ice and makes it less likely to refreeze. But there are economic and environmental costs. Both the sodium and chloride ions in salt are toxic to plants and animals when they accumulate in soil, streams, and groundwater. The ions also make cars rust and leach heavy metals from soils into the water supply. And salt on the roads attracts wildlife, like deer and moose, causing deadly accidents. What's more, sodium can get into drinking water and be harmful for people with high blood pressure. Now universities are researching ways to put icy roads on a low-sodium diet. As well as experimenting with dried-out peonies, dandelions, and grass, they're proposing to substitute industrial byproducts, derived from beets, sugarcane, barley, and cheese, for some of the salt. These waste products are produced during sugar refining and cheese making. Using them to help in de-icing ensures that they don't go to waste and reduces costs for road clearing. For example, Polk County, Wisconsin, is able to get cheese brine for free from a local dairy. The scientists say some of these additives actually lower the melting point of ice more than salt alone, a clear advantage in keeping roads clear and travelers safe. That's this week's note on emerging science. For Living on Earth, I'm Jenny Doring.
1: Some 90 million American households say it wouldn't be Christmas without a tree. And though the majority of them are fake, about 33 million homes get a real tree. And there's an ongoing debate as to whether fake or real is better for the environment. Real trees are green and great-smelling compared to their plastic cousins, but cut trees are sometimes grown far from where they are sold, and they drop needles all over the floor. And, of course, cut trees are dying trees. They're grown for 7 to 10 years, then chopped down, decorated for just a month, and thrown away. Well, there's an alternative to cutting down a seasonal pine or fir or spruce. Rent a living Christmas tree. It's the brainchild of Scotty Claus. Welcome to Living on Earth, Scotty.
4: Well, thank you for having me.
1: So you call yourself Scotty Claus. What about the other folks at your
4: company? Oh, everyone in my company has a fun name, whether it be uh, Dean Jingle, Kristen Kringle, Tanya Twinkle, Justin Season, Greg Nog.
1: Greg Nog, Justin Season, huh? <laughs> <laughs> now, what gave you this idea of renting
4: Christmas trees? It started when I was a kid, and there was no more fun you can have as a teenager delivering Christmas trees. Everybody's happy to see you. It really means that Christmas has begun in the house. And and so just a ton of fun, and you can't complain about the tips, and the problem was that intense joy you felt was sort of curbed when, you know, a couple of weeks later, I see that same tree that I struggled to get to the second story of this person's house thrown out like the trash. And, um, you know, I've been working in nurseries since I was 15 and thought, why can't we do this with living trees? I kept trying over the years and um, I would give for Christmas someone an avocado tree to decorate or different varieties of trees. And kept trying it until I felt like, hey, I've got a combination that might work and Started a website called livingchristmas.com, and away we were.
1: So, how exactly does your rent a Christmas tree business work?
4: So, everything's online. You can choose your size and variety. And what our back end does is put it in an efficient route. We're able to put, you know, 20, 30 trees on one truck and reduce our footprint by delivering those trees more efficiently. How big are these trees? We get all varieties of sizes. Um, we offer them as small as a two to three foot, but, you know, we've got some large residences and institutions getting them all the way up to 15 feet.
1: 15 feet. That's a lot of tree.
4: That's a lot of tree and a lot of roots to support that.
1: Yeah. So how do you get, I mean, do you use a forklift? I mean, how do you get that thing around?
4: Each of the trucks has already a lift gate on it and then a pallet jack. The limiting factor is the weight. They can weigh over a ton. We have a certain gentleman that that does pay for a second-story delivery, and it (laughs) takes about eight elves, and we call it our free-willy delivery because we have to put in a gurney to get up the stairs, but uh, we're able to do it.
1: (laughs) And then what happens when uh, the holidays are over?
4: So our elves pick them back up again, and then they go to my lot. Uh, Currently, we're able to use brownfields, so it's land that's been contaminated or its future use makes it unsuitable for development. But our trees are all have their own soil and above ground. So we're able to turn what was where nothing was going on into a forest in uh, in an urban area.
1: And how true is it that when you fertilize these trees the rest of the year that you're using, uh, well, stuff from reindeer?
4: Yeah. <laughs> Re- reindeer droppings have a, a, a special uh, a content to it that makes these magically grow faster. It's true. <laughs>
1: Now, your business is there in California, and uh, to grow trees, you need water. And, uh, well, you know, water's not in great supply there. So how do you grow these trees?
4: So what we've done, um, we've recently found that the Colorado blue spruce, it's one of the more traditional-looking trees. Looks like a traditional noble fir, holds ornaments, great. You know, in Southern California, it didn't make the books as a tree that does really well here, probably as defined by nurseries because it's such a slow-growing tree. But we found for our needs, it's perfect that it's slow-growing, and being slow-growing also doesn't require water in the same way that the other trees do. It's got a grain-green foliage, so that also indicates that it's not quite as water-thirsty, which makes them perfect candidates for what we're doing, and so we're slowly moving our inventory towards different varieties of spruces.
1: Now, what about somebody who wants to buy a fir, you know, or a pine or something? What if they don't want the drought-resistant variety?
4: Yeah, so we um, we inform our customers. You know, that's a big part of, is setting expectations and, and informing them. We've chosen trees that grow locally in the area, either native or adaptive. Um, and we still do offer two pine trees. There's a lepo pine and a monterey pine. Both are relatively adaptive to California's climate. They're not water thirsty. They just take more care and more water than the spruce. There's a cypress that we offer as well, which is fairly drought tolerant. So just by nature of us choosing trees that grow in Southern California um, that are native or adaptive, means that they're going to need less water, and we've increased our our number of spruces to sort of push that uh, dial that direction.
1: Now, um, do you? I wonder what kind of uh, of hazard insurance you offer with the blue spruce, since they're so prickly. I mean, you lean up against one and
4: ouch! Yeah, <laughs> the blue spruce are a bit more prickly, but there's probably seven or eight varieties of the Colorado blue spruce that we've been using and trying to get little less sharp uh, varieties into the mix. But we also recommend that you decorate with uh, some garden gloves and you'll be just fine.
1: (laughs) If I'm your client, Scotty, uh, how likely is it that I could get the same tree year after year?
4: That's one of our most difficult programs, but most wonderful programs as well. With technology improving, we've been able to geotag our trees. So as they come in and someone's requested the same tree, we we're able to track its whereabouts in the nursery. We, of course, can't guarantee that that same tree is going to be a premium tree again for the following year. And you know, so far, still the definition of a Christmas tree is pretty perfectly conical and can't have gaping holes or, or dead spots. So in being a living tree, we can't guarantee that. But most of our clients are pretty understanding of, of the flexibility required for having a living tree in our home.
1: Now, how soon do you have to retire these rental trees?
4: We don't have great numbers on that. We assume, you know, between 5 and 10% of the trees will not be with us for the following year just because of transportation costs. And sometimes there's forgetfulness from our customers of, you know, how often they water. And you're asking a lot of the tree to come inside of home from, you know, Southern California. It doesn't drop below maybe 40 degrees outside and then goes from 80 degrees inside and then back out to cold temperatures um, so that can be stressful, but so far we've, like I said, been able to retain ninety percent of our trees from year to year. So we don't necessarily know the numbers on what the retirement rate is going to be in the future.
1: Scotty, uh, how much of a selling point is the green or environmental aspect of your business?
4: Uh, you know, it's a really strong part of it. In that, the stories that I hear are those that have foregone getting a tree altogether because they're not comfortable cutting down a tree to bring it in their home and. An artificial tree just doesn't say Christmas, uh, like the symbol did when they were a kid. And so I've got people writing me emails or phone calls. And one year, this woman in tears and said, hey, you know, since I moved out to L.A., I, you know, as a single woman, couldn't get a tree into my house on my own. I really don't believe in cutting down a tree. And I'm just not going to buy a plastic tree. And so this is the first time I've celebrated Christmas, you know, in 10 years. And creating, recreating that connection has been really special for us. You know what we talk about more than the environmental side of it is just what value do you have and what value do you want to teach your kids? Yes, we're saving a tree, but it's really about what's the symbol of a tree mean in the first place, and how important is it to you to have something living at the end of the year that goes on living into next year. When I look at these trees, you know I can walk my lot, and I know that that tree's sometimes been with two or three different families and part of different christmas celebrations and and so that's been able to go into that tree. I also know last year we employed 60 people for the Christmas season that probably wouldn't have had jobs otherwise. And so to me, some of the special parts is, is that beauty of that tree that's going into it.
1: I imagine that you develop a bit of a connection with these trees over time. Uh, you're naming them, I, I think I heard.
4: Yeah. we we One of the things I enjoy the most is is going through and reading all the different names, you know, like Gangster Lean and Spruce Lee and Treesus Augustus and Little Baby trees, Um and reading what people name their trees is really one of the fun parts of, of the job.
1: Oh, the customers name the trees.
4: Oh, the customers name the trees, yeah. that's uh, When they get their adopted tree, They you have to give it a Christmas name, and, and so the, the names they come up with are just really wonderful.
1: And so then they must feel pretty strongly about getting that same tree back the next year.
4: There's it, it a challenge when you raise that bar of, of hope and expectation, but we do our best and try to keep a jolly disposition while doing it.
1: Yeah, So, but what if Wilbur isn't available this year?
4: We always give people the option of, you know, Fred Fred can't make it, maybe Frederica. Um, if Tiny Tim can't return back home, you know, maybe Tim Sr. can can do the trick. So <laughs> instead of a no or your tree passed, it's, you know, an opportunity for a new beginning and a new relationship.
1: All right, uh, before you go, tell me about the most fun installation that you had
4: with one of your rental trees. Oh, um, You know, I think one of the most touching ones was actually when I went to pick up the tree afterwards and the child sort of holding on to the tree, like hugging it and in tears, like, you know, can't we keep the tree? Can he stay? And, you know, sort of convincing her in a way that the tree can come back next year. Having named it and taken care of it and watered it, the child really created a connection with the tree and, uh, you know, couldn't help but bring tears to my eyes just watching that unabashed love of the tree um, and having to convince him that, you know, in fact, the tree can come back to him next year.
1: Scotty Claus, also known as Scott Martin for the rest of the year, is the founder of The Living Christmas Company, a Christmas tree rental firm in California. Thanks so much for taking the time, Mr. Claus.
4: Absolutely. Thank you and Merry Christmas. Happy New Year.
1: Coming up, celebrating the sound of silence on the radio. That's just ahead on Living on Earth. Stay tuned. Funding for Living on Earth comes from United
0: Technologies, a provider to the aerospace and building systems industries worldwide. UTC Building and Industrial Systems provides building technologies and supplies, container refrigeration systems that transport and preserve food, and medicine with brands such as Otis, Carrier, Chubb, Edwards, and Kidda.
1: This is PRI. Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. We'll head off now for a look beyond the headlines with Peter Dykstra. He publishes Environmental Health News. That's ehn.org and the thedailyclimate.org. And he's on the line from Conyers, Georgia. Hi, Peter. What caught your attention this week?
7: Well, hi, Steve. Let's start out with a tribute to a true American environmental hero, Martin Litton, who recently passed away at age 97. He was a giant, both literally and figuratively, and one of the few people anywhere who can say that they saved a river.
1: And not just any river, Peter, but the Colorado and also the Grand Canyon.
7: Right, Martin was arguably the last great founder of the modern American environmental movement, along with people like the late David Brower, and he and Brower battled against big dam projects in the southwest, first an unsuccessful effort to stop the Glen Canyon Dam in the Colorado, but then they marshaled the forces and political will to stop another dam that would have turned parts of the Grand Canyon into a lake. Martin was a reporter and editor, he was a World War II glider pilot, and he was a virtuoso river runner taking wooden dories through the treacherous canyon, even once when he was 87 years old. Lytton went on to be a champion of protecting California's redwood forests. I got to meet him once, and I knew I was talking to a hero. If there were an environmental Mount Rushmore, Martin Lytton would be on it.
1: Well, there must be a better way to honor environmental heroes than blowing up a mountain and carving people's heads into it.
7: You think of everything, Steve. Uh, shall we move on? Please. Well, here's a cautionary tale from the world of science. Not environmental science, strictly speaking, but a big lesson just the same. In recent years, there's been a spate of online, for-profit dubious scientific journals that have been accused of publishing almost anything as a scholarly work as long as there's a fee. There's a rather clever engineer named Alex Smolyanitsky who set up a trap sending a paper of absolute gibberish authored by obviously fake authors from obviously fake universities and guess what happened?
1: One of these journals published it?
7: No, two of these journals published it, an online artificial intelligence journal and an online nanoscience journal. The fake authors were two characters from The Simpsons, Maggie Simpson and the schoolteacher, Mrs. Edna Krabappel, along with a Mr. Kim Jong-fun. That didn't raise any eyebrows with these journals. The three were said to be professors at fake universities, and that didn't raise any eyebrows. And the publication itself made no sense because the real author was a random text generation computer program, and that didn't catch the eye of these journals either. The fake authors were notified that their fake paper passed peer review and was published. They also got an invoice for $459, presumably to cover the costs of the fake peer review.
1: Sounds like science fiction to me. What should the public make of this?
7: Well, it's a scam, it's not science Um, Make sure you're skeptical when you see things like this And ask questions You can also go to websites like Retraction Watch Which monitors scientific integrity In published papers and journals Uh, there, There are not only financial science scams Like this one apparently is But there's also ideological abuse of science My favorite example being the Oregon Petition Project Which denies the existence of climate change It drew thousands of signers The sponsors were not very picky on which scientists signed on, however, and among the so-called distinguished scientists listed on this early climate denial petition were the Spice Girls and the cast of the TV show MASH.
1: Okay, so I guess uh, we need to be careful out there. Hey, take us back for a look at environmental history now, please.
7: Well, I've got a sad and sorry story for you, and it has a quirky ending. It was 20 years ago this past week that a package bomb blew up in a home in New Jersey, killing its recipient, Thomas Mosser. He was an advertising executive whose firm had some not-so-green clients. Mosser became the third fatal victim of the Unabomber. Dozens more were wounded or maimed by a series of bombings that ran from the late 70s to the mid-1990s until Ted Kaczynski, a mathematician turned madman, was arrested for the bombings.
1: So Kaczynski picked his targets because he thought they were harming the environment?
7: Yeah, but as befits a madman, those connections were pretty remote at best. The Unabomber still locked up, and it's still an awful story. But here's the quirky connection. As famous as that house on a cul-de-sac in North Caldwell, New Jersey became, some TV producers took note of the house next door, which became the fictional TV home of another violent guy, Tony Soprano.
1: So I guess both truth and fiction can be pretty strange. I guess so. Peter Dexter is publisher of Environmental Health News. at ehn.org and thedailyclimate.org. Thanks so much, Peter.
7: Thanks a lot, Steve. We'll talk to you soon.
1: And there's more on these stories at our website, loe.org. Now that sounds something like Rossini's William Tell Overture, played, well, somewhat out of tune but it's actually Highway Rumble Strips in Lancaster, California, recorded by Trevor Cox as part of his research for The Sound Book. Trevor Cox is a professor of acoustic engineering at the University of Salford in England, and he travels the world in search of beautiful or surprising sounds. But for one chapter, he takes off his headphones and explores silence. Trevor Cox joins us now from the UK. Welcome to Living on Earth. Hi there. So you're out in the Mojave... And you're listening. How did you feel in this experience?
6: Well, it was kind of an odd experience because we'd gone there to hear um, booming sand dunes. So we had to go in the middle of the summer, in the middle of June. So it was very hot. And we actually were up on Kelso dunes, which is also quite hard work to walk up. Even when you just walk on it, you can actually hear... um, Well, it sounds a bit like someone playing the tuba badly as you walk along. So you can actually hear your footsteps making this weird sort of sound. So I suppose my, my, one of my feelings was just sort of vague exhaustion and heat but beyond that I, I thought it was a very beautiful silence because you know it really did seem very natural to, for a desert not to have any sound. I mean if I'd been in somewhere you know if I'd gone to the normal countryside and heard silence I might have felt well where's the wildlife it all sounds a bit dead but in the desert you don't expect to hear anything so it seemed quite natural.
1: So The reason you went to the desert in the first place was to capture a very big sound, that sound of the famous singing sands. Let's hear that. Almost sounds like the sand is alive in some way. Tell us about the moment when you first heard this sound in person.
6: Yeah, I mean, you talk about the dune the sounding alive, well, it feels alive, because to create it, if there's no spontaneous avalanche happening, what you need to do is sit down on your backside and create an avalanche yourself. So when you hear that sound, I mean, what I think about is not just the sound, but the memories of the whole dune shaking around me is the whole whole, you know, lot of sand went down underneath me. There's a lot of debate about why it particularly makes that sound. But it's all to do with the friction of the grains as they move past each other. But because the grains are all the same size, they slip over each other at exactly the same rate.
1: Now, you have a place that's made to be completely silent there at the University of Salford, an anechoic chamber. Tell us about the chamber and how it can keep out all the noise.
6: It's a very strange place to enter into. You have to go through these very thick, heavy acoustic doors which are there to shut out the outside world. And when you when you arrive in it, in ours, you have a sort of trampoline wire floor you stand on, which is a bit disconcerting. And then all around you're surrounded by these big grey wedges on the floor, on the walls and the ceiling. And everything you say just disappears into the wall and vanishes. So... When you talk, it sounds odd because it's quite a lot of effort and everything sounds a bit muffled. I just think the nearest description is if you're in a plane and you know your ears need to pop, and then if you stop for a moment, you notice that you can't hear any outside sounds because you're inside, I mean, essentially you're inside a room within a room, and it's all mounted on springs to stop any vibration getting into it. So it's an incredibly quiet space.
1: So let's get an idea of what it sounds like to be in there by listening to a little bit of you playing... Claude WC's Syrinx on your saxophone in the chamber. So now why does that sound so different than in a concert hall or someplace that's not so dead?
6: Well, normally in a concert hall, whenever you stop a note, the sound lingers in the room for a little while. I mean, a concert hall, it'll last probably a couple of seconds before dying away. Uh, And even in, you know, I'm talking to you from a little office here, it would last maybe half a second before dying away. Um, Whereas in that place... There's nothing. There's no reflections off the walls. There's no reflections off the ceiling or the floor to make the sound linger. So everything just dies immediately. So it's very unnatural. And as a player, one of the things I notice is that uh, my vibrato doesn't sound very good. And all the little details of my playing, which aren't quite right, are really, really clear. So musicians don't really like playing in there because there's no support from the room. It feels like really hard work and all your mistakes are sort of kind of highlighted.
1: That's right. You know, every vocalist's trick uh, for performance is a little... Echo, a little reverb on there, makes them sound sweeter and better.
6: Yeah, and even if we're not professional vocalists, we like to go into the bathroom and sing because we know, you know, the, the supporting effect of the tiled walls make us sound better.
1: Let's play another clip from the chamber. And this, this one is of you firing a starting pistol. I'm going to play that again because we can barely hear that. Now we're going to play you firing that starting pistol out in the real world. So this is really a surprising example of how much the chamber can take a huge sound like a gunshot and turn it into a helpless little pop.
6: Yeah, it's just a little click, isn't it? it, it yeah, because we're, we're used to hearing a gun, I suppose we're li- used to hearing a lot of Hollywood guns, for one thing, aren't we, which have got lots of kind of extra you know, reverberation on there, lots of room effect to make them sound powerful. Whereas in reality, the gun itself just really just makes a little click. And when I made that recording, I actually went back to it and thought, No, that can't be right. I had to do it again because I couldn't quite believe how quiet and how, you know, pathetic it was really.
1: Unless, of course, you're a spy and you want a silencer on that gun doing somebody in.
6: I guess so. I suppose it's an ideal place for assassination, but I've never really thought of that before.
1: What did you take away from thinking about and visiting uh, silent places like the Mojave?
6: Well, it made me think about how there's different kinds of silences and... I mean, strictly speaking, silence is an absence of sound, but you don't usually hear that. And the reason is actually you make internal noises. So if you go into an anechoic chamber like the one we have at Salford, what you'll hear is actually the sound of, say, the blood moving in your head, or you might hear the sounds of some firings on your auditory nerve. So you don't tend to find complete silence, and that's one of the the surprises. Um, But if you travel around, you find that for a lot of people, peace and quiet is not about getting into complete silent places which is, after all, rather desolate, but actually places where man-made noise is absent, and what you then have is lots of natural sound.
1: Now, the Campaign for Rural England is one group that's working to identify the most tranquil places um, in England, and had you record a few of them, let's listen to a little bit of what they call the most tranquil place. Well, it's not completely quiet. What are we hearing here exactly?
6: Well the hissing you're hearing is actually electrical noise on my recorder <laughs> So, uh, and I had some recording equipment I tried to record it but I had to turn the gain up on my amplifiers as much as I could and what you're hearing is a little bit of electrical hissing I mean I, it's quite hard to get to so I didn't have the quietest of recording gear um, because it's th- tranquil it's away from man-made places it's not near any roads um, and in fact to get there i had to bike on the road but mountain bike across country and then go for a hike to get to the actual spot they identified so it's quite a long and palaver to get to the place and um, and there there really wasn't anything to hear i mean it was quite quite surprising there was I, I was expecting to maybe hear some nature but it really was almost completely silent there was occasional bird sound but it was very rare
1: and um trevor where is this place
6: well, it's kind of kept a little bit secret, but it's, it's, if you look at a map of Britain, it's about sort of three-quarters of the way up, so it's right at the border of England and Scotland in Northumberland. And it's, it's, it's quite a funny place when you go and visit it, because when you go towards it, what you actually find is it's right near a Royal Air Force firing range. And one of the reasons it's very quiet is if the Air Force aren't training There is nothing else around because it's normally used for uh, shooting practice. But if you turn up there on the day that the Royal Air Force are practicing, it is anything but tranquil.
1: Now, what other kinds of attempts to protect these quiet places are already in place, uh, legislatively or otherwise?
6: Well, within, within uh, Europe, there's, uh, they actually have a directive to say that countries have to identify quiet areas and identify uh, you know, actions they're going to take to preserve them. Now, I know across in America, the National Park Service uh, look to try and preserve soundscapes. So not just preserve the landscape, what you can see, but also preserve the sounds that you can hear in places. So there's cause quite a lot of campaign groups and regulation trying to deal with this problem of noise. But it's quite a difficult balance to strike because... Most human activity makes noise. And, of course, we don't want to stop people doing what they want to do.
1: Now, how are silent or, at the very least, quiet places at risk?
6: Well, they're at risk in the cities and out in the countryside. So out in the countryside, we have problems like aircraft overflying. In cities, we have a problem that... The city itself, on average, isn't really getting very much louder. But what's happening is we're losing all the little quiet pockets, the little places where you can get away from the noise.
1: What about aircraft? It seems that any time I'm in the wilderness, someplace that's far and away, and you know, early in the morning, extremely quiet, then the planes come.
6: Yes, the thing is, engineers are doing quite well at making planes and, and cars. Quieter, but we're flying more, we're driving more. So what's happening is, although individual planes and cars are actually gradually getting quieter as technology gets better... There's many more people using them. So especially if you take a plane, because you're high up in the air, it pollutes a very large area. So, um, yeah, there is a problem in in lots of countries about the, the, the noise from aircraft. And at the moment in the UK, they're debating where to build another runway near London. And all the discussions are nearly all about the noise problems this creates.
1: Well, why are these quiet places so important and why should we be concerned about losing them?
6: There's lots of evidence that noise causes us problems. We know that noise getting in the way of of sleep is a problem, so we know that it's important that we can can get away from noise, and psychologically that's important for us as well. There's been a variety of scientific studies into the importance of having quiet refuges, and for example there was a study in Sweden which showed that if you lived on a busy road, then that was kind of okay provided one side of your house backed onto somewhere quiet, Because that gives you somewhere in your house to get away from the noise for some of the time. So providing people can get away from the noise of the city and are not stuck listening to noise all, all the time, they seem to find it much less annoying.
1: And what about being around people who are constantly chattering?
6: Well I think it's quite interesting because I think there's something quite pleasurable about chattering provided it's not too much um, because we're social animals we we do very well because we we live in a society where we cooperate with each other so actually the sound of, of that sort of gentle babble you get as you sit in the corner of a cafe I suspect is rather good for you.
1: So what got you into sound?
6: Well, I I did physics originally, and I was quite a good scientist as a a kid. But I was also a musician, so I I played the clarinet when I was younger. And so it seemed a natural way of combining two things, my interest in music and my interest in science.
1: And so all those hours sitting with the clarinet uh, have paid off.
6: Well, I don't know if they've paid off. I'm not the greatest of musicians. But they certainly sparked an interest which uh, has lasted the rest of my adult life.
1: Trevor Cox is a professor of acoustic engineering at the University of Salford. In the UK, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks very much. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Naomi Ehrenberg, Bobby Bascom, Emmett Fitzgerald, Helen Palmer, Adelaide Chen, Jenny Doring, Lauren Hinkle, Jake Lucas, and Jennifer Marquis are all part of our team. Our show is engineered by James Kerwood with help from Carlin Daigle. Allison Learish-Dean composed our themes. You can find us anytime at LOE.org. And like us, please, on our Facebook page. It's PRI's Living on Earth. And we tweet from at Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the Grantham Foundation
0: for the Protection of the Environment, supporting strategic communication and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems. The Candida Fund, furthering the values that contribute to a healthy planet, and Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. Living on Earth is also supported by Stonyfield Farm, makers of organic yogurt, smoothies, and more www.stonyfield.com PRI Public Radio International